Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey, and I want to add my greeting to Drew's. Now, just a little confession up front. If I say anything goofy this morning, I'm very tired, and I'm hurting. My wife and I, with um, Gabby and Parker and our two very good friends, Keith and Terry, ran 100 miles yesterday (laughs) in a relay race from uh, Richmond to Williamsburg and back. And it was a lot of fun, and if, well, even if you don't know me, just by looking, you can tell that I'm new to this. (laughs) Now, my wife wrote, jogged over 22 miles, which was equivalent to my eight miles in terms of pain. (laughs) We got in at 2.30 last night, so anything you disagree with, you can just, you've got the excuse, he was delirious. Um... All right. (laughs) We just heard three pieces of scripture, and this is the important point, from three different places in the Bible. All right. We heard something from a portion of the Old Testament uh, called the prophets, a portion of the New Testament called the epistles, which were these letters written by Paul to churches, and then something from the gospels, something that Jesus said. And all three of these do the same thing. They put the poor dead sinner to the gospel. Non-negotiable, not a second order issue, not an implication, but right at the center of it. And we could have gone to many other passages. We could have gone to the last chapter of Proverbs, the, the book in the Bible that's about wisdom par excellence. And the book of the Bible that ends on wisdom ends with two women And both women, one the mother of the king and the other a homemaker, both of them are centrally concerned with the poor. So wisdom manifests itself in attention to the poor. The prophets preached about the poor. Jesus put the poor in your response to them. He tied it up into your eternal destiny. Paul, he's writing a letter and he's describing the early church coming to terms with can Gentiles and Jews both be a part of the kingdom. And the last thing he says is, yes, but this 2,000 year heritage of keeping the poor at the center has to continue as Christianity grows and evolves and moves into other cultures. All three, the whole Bible puts the, the issues of justice that are related to economics at the heart of gospel living, of Christian living. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go through Isaiah chapter 58, and I want us to look at this chapter and show how it opens up this subject of our vertical relationship with God playing out in our horizontal relationships, the way we interact with people who, because of various issues, cannot secure justice economically for themselves. Isaiah chapter 58, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to to find it. What I'm going to do is I'm basically going to go through Isaiah 58 section by section, There are four sections. I've only got time to cover the first three. The fourth is part of the same subject. It's deeply related, but the sermon I wrote that included that was way too long. So I cut out that point, and um, here we go, Isaiah chapter 58. Let's start. So there's there's three sections we're going to look at. Verses 1 to 5 is the first section. 
Verses 6 through the first half of verse 9 is the second section. And then the second half of verse 9 through 12 is the third section. I'm going to walk through these section by section and show how they open up for us God's will and God's ways with regard to God's people and the poor. Isaiah, let's start right at the beginning, verse, chapter 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Lift up your voice. Literally, it's um, with your throat. It's a Hebrew idiom for scream as loud as you can. Yell. And it's parallel to cry aloud, do not hold back. And it's parallel to like a trumpet. And this time a trumpet was the instrument they used to get the community to stop everything it's doing immediately and either beware of war or pay attention to what's about to be said. Stop everything you're doing, all your activities, and pay attention. And what is the problem? What is the issue that has to be, that, that, that is so important it interrupts everything? Well, to be blunt, God's people are rebelling against God. That's what the word transgression means. It means rebellion. And what is their particular rebellion that is so serious? It's a life and death issue. What sin could be so serious that God would threaten his people with death? Look at verse 2. These are God's people. They love God. They worship God. That phrase in verse 2, seek me daily, that's, that's an idiom for worship. It's lifted right out of the Psalms. Seek me is the, is the code word in the Psalms for what we're doing this morning. We are gathered here seeking God, seeking his forgiveness, seeking his justice, seeking his kindness, seeking his mercy, seeking his light to shine out into our lives so we can know how to live in ways that please him. They love to worship God. And look what else it says. They delight in his ways. They really do. This is not said tongue in cheek. They genuinely delight in drawing near to God. These are God's people. So do you see the conundrum? Here are God's people who love God. And in verse 1, he calls them my people. He loves them. They love him. And in verse Two, not only do these people love God and worship him and delight him and seek him and love his ways, but in verse 3, they're not lazy in their love for God. They do very serious acts of devotion. They fast. The fast of verse 3 is legitimate. They are not hypocrites here. They are not people who are just doing an outward form but inside, not really engaging with God. They are doing a serious act of self-discipline and humility, and yet... There is this conundrum. So see, think about this. They love God. They delight in his ways. They pursue him. They deny themselves in order to draw near to him. And yet God says you're in rebellion. And what you're supposed to do at that moment is say, well, this feels like, how, how do you cut this? How, how, how does that make sense? What in the world are these people who love God and delight in his ways? What are they missing that makes it a matter of life and death? Look at the end of verse 3. You seek your own pleasure. Literally, you pursue your own business. It's a a word that's a double entendre for pleasure and business. And it's bringing in the economic reality. And you oppress all your workers. So the sin, the sin that is so serious that these people are otherwise 
these people who really do love God and really do seek his ways and really do worship him and really do fast and really do all of these things, they really practice their faith. The sin that they are committing that is actually an act of rebellion and treason against the king and is so serious that life and death is at stake, the sin is injustice. And specifically, the sin of economic injustice. In other words, justice matters that much to God. Justice, economic justice, is serious to God. Several weeks ago, we saw that Jesus' primary message was something Christians call the gospel. And what did we see several weeks ago the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that in Jesus the kingdom has come. And kingdom is every square inch of your life lived in a state of flourishing and shalom. And if you don't think economic justice affects your flourishing, then you just haven't grown up yet, right? You just haven't realized how much of your life is tied to money. If the kingdom of God is about, if the gospel is the arrival of the kingdom in the king, and then God's people who are in the kingdom are failing to actually own up to the dominating power of economics in their life for shalom, then it's a matter of life and death. God won't stand for that. God will not allow us to separate that out. He will not allow us to make Christianity only about some set of middle-class moral virtues. He insists that Christianity is a 360-degree, every square inch of life flourishing. That's what it's about. Justice matters. It matters. It's central to God's kingdom. And therefore, since it's central... Tolerating injustice and failing to fight for justice is a sin that God will hold us accountable for. It's serious. Now that's what God puts squarely on the board in this first section of Isaiah chapter 58. What happens in the remaining verses of the chapter is God actually goes through three more sections, three cycles of if-then statements. If you would get your act together on this, here's how I'm going to bless you. We're going to just work through the first two. Three cycles. We're going to cover two. If you will change, here's the good stuff that will happen. The first cycle is verses 6 through... The beginning of verse 9. And here God says, basically, if you will work for justice, I will heal you and protect you and make myself available to you. Let's look at some of the details. Notice in particular that in verse 7, he says you have to work for justice on a... I'm sorry, in verse 6. You have to work for justice... On a systemic level. And then in verse 7. You have to work for justice. On a personal level. Alright. So let's look at this. Verse 6. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. This is about systemic work. If you have power. If you have influence, if you have cultural capital, 
You must use it to enable all of the members of your community to flourish. You know, Spider-Man's mantra, right? With great response, with great power comes great responsibility. You must use whatever power you have to influence our city so that all of the people who live in this city, citizens or not, can deploy their latent strengths fully to the fullest. Those of us with access to power, to money, to influence, we must accept the heavy responsibility of unlocking the yokes, the chains, the barriers that prohibit people from a fair shake. If you have influence, you cannot lose sight of the poor and the oppressed. You must be their champion. Now, Scripture doesn't prescribe one form of government over another. Many different responses are called for to the multifaceted, complex issue of poverty. But all Christians, whether they are Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or some other thing, all Christians must exercise a preferential option for the poor. That's verse 6. Now look at verse 7. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. Cover the naked. Now this response to poverty, to injustice, to oppression is on a personal level. This isn't about addressing the system. The focus here shifts to the local, the personal, the particular. And this goes for all of us, those of us with money and power and influence, and those of us without money or power or influence. We must see the poor. We must see the needy and respond to them with specific acts of practical generosity, such as food, clothing, and shelter. Don't even... Need Maslow to tell us. Here it is, right here. All right. All of us must find specific opportunities to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage, to bring advantage to others. We all of us have to find moments to deny ourselves and give things up in order to provide the most basic and simple needs for those who, for whatever reason, are unable to secure them for themselves. That's verse seven. Then in verse 8, through the beginning of verse 9, God says, Now, if you do this, if you will respond by working for systemic justice, and if you will respond by personally sacrificing in order to advantage others, if you do this, then it tells us God. Look what it says he will do in verse 8. Your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. This is a poetic picture of immense fecundity, overwhelming well-being. This is a picture of God's full communion with us. His gracious and merciful and quick 
attention. And it's generous availability. Tied to what? To the if. If we would work systemically and personally for justice. So notice, God's attentiveness to his people is directly linked to his people's attentiveness to the poor. We omit justice from our callings, from our vocations in this world as humans, from the work of our lives, from the vision of our church. We omit justice at the peril of our relationship with God, at the peril of our own well-being. By the way, I could be saying the exact same thing from Matthew 25. The church cannot ignore the social issues of the day. In the words of one of my favorite theological heroes, Abraham Kuyper, the church is called to support the rights of the poor. Let whomever is oppressed have the church's support. May the poor find the church to be a place of refuge. May the church become for rich and poor together once again an angel of peace who gently leads us from both the abuses and the utopias of our age back to the ordinances of God's word. Okay, that's the first cycle. Now let's look at the second cycle of if-then statements. This is the latter half of verse 9 through verse 12. And again, notice we're dealing with the fight for justice through the enormously complex issues of systemic yokes. Again, we're still dealing with working for systemic health so that people are no longer trapped by systemic forces creating whole cultures of injustice. Again, in the end of verse 9 through verse 12, we again are dealing with a call for challenging free market economics. We're again dealing with a call for a compassionate economics. In contrast to economic systems that allow people to be entrapped in spiraling debt loads that they can't get out of. Now we need to be careful here. Because the values embedded in the Bible do not make a straight line into legislation. In other words, the preferential option for the poor that we find in Scripture, it does not mean that everyone has to be committed to raising minimum wage. There are very bright economists on both sides of this issue. What I'm saying is that in our church, some of you are Democrats, and some of you are Republicans, and some of you are Libertarians, and all of us, no matter our political party, are required to be concerned for the poor. And your job is to bring into the public debate the best option your approach has. And the go for it. Debate on the issue. Go for the jugular on the issue. And be willing to critique your party when it does not manifest a wise preferential option for the poor. 
And be willing to absolutely rise above your party. But also be willing to argue for when you think your party has a good way forward. These are massively complex issues. There is no straight line between the Bible and legislation on these issues. Structural evil, institutional injustice. These types of wrongs require structural, institutional answers. And listen, social problems are far more complex than scientific natural problems. But look at verse 10. Takes us back to the personal level. The first part of verse 9. Take away the yoke. There it is, the structural level. Then verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry. Goes back to the personal level. So again, all of us must find specific opportunities to disadvantage ourselves. To pour ourselves out in order to provide the most basic and simple needs For those who are unable to secure food, clothing, and shelter for themselves. And if we do this, if we work for justice in the form of delivering people from systemic yokes and from daily hunger, then in verses 11 through 12, look what will happen. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the picture of a city flourishing. Streets that people can dwell in. Do you know what this is saying? This is saying that the hope of our city to move ever deeper into the paths of flourishing and shalom, the hope of our city to become a great city for every citizen is scandalously tied to the commitment of the body of Christ To fight for justice. We saw this last week in Jeremiah 29. In your shalom. Talking to the people of God. The city will flourish. And in the city's flourishing you will flourish. God one of his biggest lessons to his people. Was getting them to accept this. That they can't exist in a ghetto. That that their behavior. That the church is central to the kingdom. It's not all there is to the kingdom, but it is central to the kingdom. That the kingdom's movement into the world, the flourishing of the world, for whatever reason, and if you were God, maybe you would have done it differently than tie it to this thing that you don't like or that has all kinds of problems called called the church, but God did. He scandalously tied the flourishing of cities to the health of the church. And today we're seeing to the health of the church in regard to how it fights on systemic and personal levels for the poor and the oppressed. We are a Christian church. Our job is to work for God's justice in this particular community. To work for the health and flourishing of Harrisonburg. And for everyone who lives in it to work for God's wise and exuberant freedom to come to birth within every square inch of this particular community. And our relationship with God depends on it and the flourishing of this city depends on it. All right. So what about our church? How are we doing on this? I mean, if... 
If this much is on the line, holy cow, how are we doing? We are people who in verse 1 of Isaiah 58, I'm convinced, love God. And we are loved by God. And we delight in worshiping him. We come here every Sunday to worship him and we seek his ways. And we do the fast, just like he talks about, where we seek God, where we do these serious acts of self-disciplined devotion to God. And God loves us. And here's what I think. I think we're doing good. I really do. Let me, let me name for you some of the remarkable ways I think that our church is really living in light of this. And then let me talk about some ways that I think we need to push further in the years ahead. I am so happy that our church is filled with people who are following God into the hard places of our community. Our church is filled with people who work in clinics for unwanted pregnancies and agencies that work with the needs of undocumented citizens. Our church is, it has def, criminal defense lawyers. Aren't you glad to go to a church that has criminal defense lawyers? The, the, the third largest um, vocation in our church, as, as best as I can tell, the, the, largest, the, the largest vocation in our church, the vocation that has the most people in our church are homemakers, the second is artists, and the third are mental health care workers. Our church is filled with social workers and psychologists and people who are working with mental health care issues. There are people in our church who worked with handicapped children and refugees. There are people in our church who are specialists in trauma, the trauma of refugee, being a refugee, and literacy, and the homeless, and the weak, and the vulnerable. And that's just to call attention to how our church is engaging this issue as an organism. Remember, I talked about this last week. A church has two aspects. A church is an organism and an institution. As an organism, it's when we leave this room and you go to your jobs and you go to your volunteer places and you go to live as neighbors and you go to function as citizens. Our church, there are more people in our church involved with the poor and the vulnerable than any church I've ever been a part of. Now, I'm not saying that's all the churches in the world, but just my own anecdotal experience. On, the, on an organism level, this is quite remarkable. How's our church doing on an institutional level when it comes to engaging the poor and working for justice? On an institutional level, our church has some incredible habits. For example, one of the mechanisms our church has for as an institution in it responding and giving attention to those who can't secure justice for themselves is called the Rector's Discretionary Fund. For the first three years of our existence, our church put $1,000 a year, give or take, into our budget, tithes and offerings. We took $1,000 of it and dedicated that to people in our church and in the community who have physical and financial needs. After three years, we got the idea, let's stop funding this out of the tithes and offerings, and let's start taking up a special offering and letting everybody give to it how they can set aside in their own heart, called the Rector's Discretionary Fund. The first year that we did this, we went from dedicating $1,000 out of our tithes and offerings. We then designated, we then gave, the very first year, 2014, that we took up Rector's Discretionary Fund offerings, we gave $10,000. We jumped up from $1,000 to $10,000. 
In 2015, our church gave 42% more than that. It gave $14,000. And then the next year, 2000, that was 2015. The next year, 2016, we gave $27,000, a 92% increase. And this year, 2017, in addition to our tithes and offerings, over and above that, our church has given more than $45,000 to the Rector's Discretionary Fund. That's another 64% increase. And that money, 100% of it, goes to people who cannot physically or financially cover their bills, who need help. And in addition to that $45,000, this year our church has designated another $53,000 of our tithes and offerings to go to missions, which are dedicated to the poor in Rwanda and several other big categories. So this year, our church is giving almost $100,000 of a $400,000 budget. This is insane. This, on an institutional level, this is a mechanism. It's not all there is. It's a mechanism. And what we are do- the habits in our church are bewildering. Next, this year, we're giving 14% of our tithes and offerings to um, mission work, things like the poor in Rwanda, Ava Care, Mercy House, Hearts, all these things. In 2018, we're designating, we're proposing to you, we're about to vote, vote on the budget, we're going to propose to you that we set aside 18% of all the tithes that come in to going to missions. And our goal is in 2019 to hit 20%. We've been aiming at that since day one. We've been scrapping and clawing because the churches that planted us, that's what they did. They gave away 20%. This is in addition to the offering we take. This is remarkable. Now I want to talk to you about some ways that we're going to do even more. The ways that we're going to multiply our expressions of mercy and justice in the years ahead. You know, if you've been around our church, we're going through a lot of changes. And so starting this week, the last three sermons, I've been laying the, the foundation for why we're making these changes. Is what, what is at the heart of our church as we make these changes? And in the next four sermons, counting this one, I'm going to identify particular areas that these changes are going to open up for us into the world. This week, mercy and justice. Another week's going to be on church planting. Another week's going to be on being public with our faith. Another week is going to be on Christian formation. What are we hoping to do in the years to come? Number one, we are going to better communicate all of these organism engagements with the poor. In other words, Gil is on the board for Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Leanne works with a certain aspect of vulnerable people. This goes all around. Jenny's on the board for the counseling, journey counseling. There are people here on the board for Mercy House. and, and the way, and we're already working on that, and the way we did that was we hired a parish administrator who was, for over a decade, 
a missionary, Mike Medley. And already, if you receive our, our newsletters, already on a regular basis, we are communicating and telling the stories of who's doing what. And we're going to get better and better at that. And there's going to be a place on our website where you can say who's doing what in this church. There's going to be documents on the back table. And we're going to keep working on that, on letting you know who's doing what on an organism level. Another goal is that it might be in 2018, but it probably will be in 2019. We're going to develop a diaconate. We're going to develop a group of people in our church who are ordained, laid hands on, commissioned to specialize in issues of poverty. We're going to develop a diaconate. Our diaconate is going to be a group of men and women who reach out to people in incarnation and in the community who are in crisis or in challenging circumstances. And they're going to offer help in assessing their needs and working together to find solutions. Our deacons, now you've, if you've been at other churches, deacons do lots of things. This is what our deacons are going to do. Our deacons are going to focus on extending mercy and compassion to relieve suffering and misery through practical assistance, financial help, job search, developing care for people in difficult life events. Now, what exactly is it going to be? We don't know yet. It's going to be at the intersection of the people in our church who are gifted with it and the needs of our community. Do you know that there are places in this world where the deacons run the hospitals because they invented the hospitals 400 years ago? The church has always found the gaps in the social net and gone there. So what are the gaps in the social net in Harrisonburg? Our deacons are going to lead us there. And they're going to form this group of people who kind of bridge the church's institution and the church's organism. We're going to become a church by the grace of God that is famous for its mercy and justice. The Lord willing. A third goal that we've got in this area in the years to come is that we're going to get much better at training and equipping all of the people in our church in the special skill sets required to befriend and help the poor. Janelle and I are not poor. We live downtown, and we know a lot of homeless people by name. And we're frequently in a situation where we think, what would Leanne do? And so we call Leanne. What would Aaron do? And so we call Aaron. And we're going to become better at equipping the whole church because all of us need to be next to the vulnerable. And there's a massive set of complicated issues involved in that. And we're going to get better at equipping our church. Now, as a church, part of our responsibility is to work with other people. Look, the mercy and justice work of this town is not only about the church, right? It's, it's happening in a thousand ways in this town. But our job is to partner with others that are doing this, who are working to protect the weak and the vulnerable, to take up their injustice, to bring it to speech, and to help those people articulate it, and when they're ready, turn their own cries of pain into prayers to their creator who loves them. But we can't stop there. We have to do the structural work. We have to do the institutional work. And so our work continues and it goes on. And in the years ahead, we are envisioning, our leadership is working hard to say, we've been saying for the good of the city for seven years. Now, how can we actually pull that off? What are some very practical mechanisms? And we look at the rector's discretionary fund and we say, 
That is a mechanism that's working. What other mechanisms can we put in place? And what we've identified are two. A much better communication system tied into Mike Medley, who's leading us there already, and a diaconate. Why are we doing all of this? Because when we gather around on Sundays and give our attention and our adoration to Jesus Christ, the Bible is crystal clear. The Savior of the world is the creator of the world. And whenever you gaze in adoration on him, his face is always to the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.